On April 17th, 2022, the trumpet world lost an all-time legend in Mr. Bob Reeves. Bob was much more than just a mouthpiece manufacturer. In fact, even if you've never played a Bob Reeves mouthpiece, you have been influenced and impacted by his work. Bob was an innovator. He was a meticulous craftsman, and he set the standard that most modern manufacturers are trying to live up to. Now, I didn't know Bob personally, but I do know how much of an impact he had on the industry because of several of my good friends and trumpet guru guests. So what I thought I would do is to take a moment to talk to a few of them about how Bob impacted them in the way they've approached their careers and how that has inevitably impacted each of us. So let's start with Chris Cromer. Chris is a good friend. As a matter of fact, he is my personal technician. He is a great repair person, and Bob was a great influence on him in his understanding of concepts such as valve alignments. So Chris is going to share his insights and what Bob meant to him and how he feels Bob's legacy will continue to impact the trumpet community as a whole. But no, Bob was great, man. I always, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the old Macs, the old, I mean, going back, I I would say he might be one of the first to really apply finer technology, you know, beyond, you know, the basics and copying things and people kind of doing what everybody's always done. I mean, everybody kind of, you know, somebody gets hip to something or, or, you know, the new standard is set as far as how an instrument is, is designed. A lot of people kind of follow that. But I think he was the first one to really kind of apply a more fine-tooth comb to things in my eye. And in the modern era, you know, let's just say like the last, you know, since, since the, you know, the the 20th century per se. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he really found a way to peel another 10 layers off the onion and really was, uh, I, I remember I always tell people this when I talk about him, is that he would, he told me how he was a machinist in the Navy and how he's, if I recall, if I'm remembering this correctly, his bench test was, he had to make a steel block and it had to be, you know, perfect. And you think that's easy, just square, but it's like, when you're talking about tens of thousands of an inch, you know, it's, it's, and they're going to measure it with every little mic they got. And, and that was his, uh, his thing. Um, so, you know, he really applied that to the trumpet world and, and then just, you know, to him, it has to be perfect. It's like, this comes in here, this goes to here, this has to be perfect. And he was able to kind of make that repeatable. Um, but he was always just so willing, you know, he's kind of an exemplar of like what I love about this industry that most people are very open and are, are interested almost to a fault of telling, talking to people about their uh, what they do and their ideas and sharing the knowledge. You know, Terry's another great example of that, of just, you know, aggressively interested in just helping people get the, you know, that next generation or just sharing that knowledge and just kind of not going, oh, well, I don't want to tell you that. That's a trade secret or I can't, you know, eh, is there any secrets really? Or is it just glorified plumbing kind of thing? You know, like, and he was always very, I could talk to him about anything. I remember all, all the different shows and a couple of times we were even, uh, you know, table neighbors at a couple conferences and just, he would, he would just talk for hours about anything. Just when I was trying to kind of dice into valve alignments and, 
you know, figure out all of that and its relevance. And he, he would just, he would talk to you and tell you anything. He was never somebody who was looking around for the conversation to be over, like you know, looking over your shoulder for someone cooler to talk to. He was always zeroed in on the conversation. And I always, uh, that, that really stands out to me. Yeah, that, that's kind of cool. And yeah, one, one of the things you said that's kind of interesting is like the, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of artists uh, in the world of, of mouthpiece manufacturing and things like that. You know, I, I've heard stories like of, about uh, Dominic Calicchio and, you know, kind of just, you know, everything was kind of by hand, you know, yeah. and, and there, that's cool. That's really cool. But, you know, where Bob, like you're saying, things kind of, he was kind of the first person to take that old world craftsmanship and apply like more modern machining and, and, you know, the, those super tight tolerances that, you know, that, that he had to do as a, as a machinist, you know, taking that and bringing that into the mix. So kind of getting the best of, uh, of both the science and the art of making, uh, making pieces. So that, that right. was, that was really kind of cool. And like, you know, so we had the, you know, he did the mouthpieces, you know, the sleeves, you know, I don't know if anybody was doing that before, before Bob or how that, that came about and, um, you know, the, the valve alignments, you know, became a big thing. So, uh, yeah, he definitely, definitely left a, an impression on the world of, uh, of trumpet playing. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, you know, I'd have to, I, yeah, you know, I, I can't say for sure, but I, I have a pretty good idea that you mentioned, you know, the sleeves and how to, uh, mitigate gap in the mouthpiece. I'm pretty sure that was his brainchild because, I know in, in, in reading Reynolds Schilke's research, at least, I mean, for a long time, it was considered a mistake if you had a gap between the end of the mouthpiece and the beginning of the lead pipe. Because, you know, if you bought a Schilke, you bought it with a Schilke mouthpiece. You bought a Bach, it came with a Bach mouthpiece, and they all fit. And then when people started doing aftermarket lead pipes, that relationship and the movement um, changed. And people went, oh, well, there's a space there. That's a mistake. And he was the one to go, well it has an impact on how this horn responds. So instead of eliminating it, let's use this as a, a point of adjustment and a point of resistance to regulate how this horn plays. And I mean, obviously that was a game changer in, in the way the gap works with everything from his sleeves to adjustable gap receivers or just being aware of that when you're trying to problem solve. Um, so I, I, you know, like I say, I'm pretty sure he was the one that spearheaded that whole thing of using that as a, as a tool instead of eliminating it as a mistake. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, that's really kind of a, a cool concept, you know, when you start uh, really diving into the science of the horn and, you know, understanding those points of resistance, the, you know, uh, how you can make these subtle changes to the structure of the horn or, or the, you know, the, those different resistance points and create, a more efficient or a slightly different sounding horn. And, uh, you know, so instead of just having to go out and buy a new horn every time, but which is okay if, you know, if you're a horn manufacturer. But uh, so when, like, when, when you think about like these kind of concepts, I mean, you know, like for me, when I see somebody has done something that's like new and innovative, so that I'm immediately like, that's really cool. And then I start thinking about, well, why didn't I think of that? And then my next thought is usually like, okay, well, then, you know, how could I take this idea and maybe build on it or, or uh, adjust it or adopt it? So, 
you know, did any of any of these ideas that that uh, you know Bob brought into the the picture, you know, have they impacted you in, in the way you you approach, you know, your working on horns? Yeah, I mean, at very least, with playing. I mean, when I even when I was in college, you know, the mouthpiece that I chose. I mean, while it was a Warburton and not one of Bob's mouthpieces, it was you know the gap in there definitely was something that between myself and my trumpet professor was something we paid attention to and. And, uh, you know, the backboard I picked was, you know, adjusted for that because I had a bench. So I needed something that kind of took up a little bit more space so I could have a little bit more of a gap in there. Since I was uh, in college, I was a lead player or posing as a lead player, I guess. And I needed a little bit more, you know, resistance in that spot to anchor the upper register. So it was, you know, yeah, applying it in that way. And I would just say in general, professionally, um, just having you know, talking to someone and bouncing ideas off them and, and seeing what they, what sticks and what some, some feedback somebody might give to you, especially somebody like Bob is going to, you know, cause you to, to fortify what, you know, like you're, you're going to either throw away the bad ideas or you're going to fortify what, you know, and make you think of another way to look at it. And because he was so willing to talk you know, openly, um, it was a real way to kind of just refine your thing, just the conversation of just absorbing the knowledge. It's hard to, pinpointed, I guess, on any one particular point. I guess I talked to him most about valve alignment just because that's what he's known for. So when I started, you know, thinking I, maybe I should offer that, you know, he was one of the first people I talked to about that to kind of get his perspective. So, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and that was that that was another thing I wanted to ask you about because, uh, you know, valve alignment was not something that I had heard a whole lot about uh, when I was you know, coming up the ranks as a player. And um, it it was probably not until the uh, early 2000s that I even heard that term. Um, and, you know, with with typical, that combination of, uh, you know, wanting some, some uh, trumpet voodoo and, uh, the, and also being skeptical about it, you know, and, and I, so, you know, d diving a little bit, and, you know, I had, a, had an alignment done and, um, you know, the horn did definitely play, play different. So, you know, from, as a, you know, from your perspective as a, as a technician, um, you know, what is the advantage you see of, of uh, valve alignments and, and what are some of the, the concepts that Bob, you know, helped you to, to understand, to help you be a better uh, person for doing those kind of, those kind of jobs? It really opens your eye to like, to, to how imperfect a lot of these things are made. You know, a lot of people make instruments and a lot of them do a good job, but there's just things where I guess the higher volume you do, the more, you know, mistakes or misgivings are gonna be in the, in the instrument and how it's put together and just kind of looking at even just the simplest thing as felts and how they adjust the alignment or even the rotational alignment if the spring barrels are not correctly soldered in. Um, that was actually, in, in a way, thinking about it, not him directly, but in a roundabout way, his concepts of that, of how he looked at things being, you know, all these adjustment points of, you know, didn't know this and kind of shedding light on these things and diving into those things is kind of where I came from with that because I realized that the, some of the instruments were just not made well. And I'm just like, well, why is it made like that? Like, you know, realizing the simple little things that just you never questioned like felts or corks and things like that and the way that the nodal points struck on things and, and the seams and the, and the horn. And he really thought a lot about that kind of stuff. So 
um, yeah, without without him uh, really cracking those eggs open, I, I don't know though it would have occurred to many because again, so much of what we do is kind of like you know rudimentary. You know, you just kind of do, you know, you do what's asked of you. You do what you within with within what you know. And he was kind of bringing, you know, I guess discomfort to that of like, well, no, here's a different way to look at it and trying to do something different with it. So, you know, may, you know, I. I had met him probably going back to the late 90s when I first started going to conferences. And he's definitely one of the people I would talk to just going around even before I started my business to, you know, hey, like, let me let me ask you about this or just, you know, getting information that kind of inspires some type of thought about the direction of it. Like, you know, as I'm shaping how I even think about things. So, I mean, that's probably broader i guess than you would uh want but i mean i don't know for me i don't know would i would i have even gotten into this if it wasn't for somebody like bob reeves that made it interesting and made it made people think critically about the instrument because that's how i thought about it and if there's not somebody else doing that then you go ah i don't know what i'm thinking you know no one else is doing this i'm probably wrong yeah. then you somebody like him and you're like no this guy's thinking the same thing and then, like, tell me more about that. And then he tells you something. You're like, oh, I was thinking of that. And I, I thought it was a, you know, good or bad idea. And then he tells you he already ran all the experiments. And then you can throw it away or you can go forward with it. So, yeah, just the tone he set. I mean, because obviously he far precedes almost everybody in the business. So it's hard to think how far back his his way of thinking and what he did really set up a lot of things that I wasn't even thinking of when I first started. Yeah. So, I mean, w from your perspective, what do you see as being kind of the, the legacy that Bob has, has laid down and, and, you know, how can, how can we pay that forward? How can we keep it going? I would say like the first thing, just uh, the fact that he was so willing to talk to people and willing to share the information, you know, there, there's, you know, I guess limits to everything as far as just like, you know, there's almost, almost so much time in the day, but you know, the fact that he was so willing and open and, and open to talk to people about things and kind of help bring up the next generation of, you know, technicians or manufacturers, I think that's the biggest thing. He was so easy going about that stuff. And, you know, you hope that that's not one of those things that gets shut where people become more closed off and, and not wanting to talk to people and, you know, he, he, you you want to keep things open. You want you want people to be able to learn and and kind of kick ideas around and things. And I think he really, I think he did that almost better than anybody of just setting that tone of having that kind of environment. You know, I mean, it's not a technical legacy, but I think that's important because without that, um, who else is learning anything? Who's getting inspired? Who's who's even that's thinking about getting into a business or has an idea? you know, somebody like that that's willing to talk to them and entertain it goes a long way. I mean, I'm sure you could make a family tree of all the different people that he's influenced or even directly mentored, and I'm sure it's massive, you know? Yeah, well, that's true. For years, Bob was considered to be the oldest living mouthpiece maker. Well, now that Bob's gone, that title has been passed, and it's been passed to his good friend of several decades, Mr. Terry Walburton. Terry has been in the business 
for a long time and has worked with Giardinelli and then formed his own company, Warburton Music Products. Over the years, Terry and Bob have had a very, very good relationship and would often spend hours talking trade business and just life in general with each other. So let's hear from Terry in his own words, the impact that Bob has made on him as a mouthpiece manufacturer and what he sees Bob's ongoing legacy as being. And so when, when did you, when did you first meet Bob or, you know, when did your past? Oh boy, I'll tell you what. I remember going to his little shop in uh, Ridgewood or Hollywood, whatever the heck it was. I want to say it was back in the mid eighties, maybe probably mid eighties, you know? And, and so I met him then <clears throat> very nice gentleman. You know, he was very gracious to me at the time, showed me everything he's doing and he knew what I was doing, you know, that I was quote a competitor, but I mean, Bob is much like me. It's like, we're not competitors. We're in the same business. You know, we don't feel like we're competing against each other. You know what I mean? None of us feel that way, really. Well, there's probably one or two guys that feel that way, but I'm not one of them. Yeah. You know, I just feel like we're all in the same industry and it's a small industry. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty short list of uh, characters, you know, and it just got a little shorter with Bob leaving the scene. And I, you know, I'm happy that I've had a chance to, you know, I met Vincent Bach. I knew Reno Schilke fairly well. Of course, I knew Bob Giardinelli really, really well. And I got to meet Zatola, mouthpiece bigger. When I met him, I went to his shop, nothing going on. The guy says, oh, he's down at the boat yard working on his boat. And I went, oh, my kind of guy. There you go. <laughs> It was funny. I, sh I showed him, uh, yeah, I told him who I was. He goes, yeah, I heard about you. And I, I showed him a mouthpiece and he goes, well, I see you're not here to learn about how to make a mouthpiece. So what do you want to talk about? <laughs> and Al Cass, I spent a very nice day with Al, sold a lot of his pieces back in the 70s. Alberto Cassinelli was his name, by the way. Well, I did not know that. So there's a little uh, nugget of wisdom that, that you're passing along. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, and that's the one thing that I did definitely hear uh, about Bob and that, you know, when, when uh, you know, this, this opportunity came up, I immediately thought about you because I knew how, you know, you, you talked to Bob, you know, during the year, off, off and on during the years, you know, anytime we were at a show or something like that, you know, you guys would, would uh, do your little hangs and stuff, but it's that, that attitude of, you know, we, we have knowledge to share with other people and to make, you know, make, make those, the trumpet world a little bit better place. And, the, and happy to do it. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, you know, Bob had that <laughs> reputation, you have that reputation and, you know, there, there are a few others that, that are kind of, you know, the lightweight and some are just kind of like doing, you know, heads down doing their, their, their thing. But it, it seemed like you and Bob both kind of had that mentality of, of being willing to go the extra mile with people uh, if they're really earnestly looking for uh, some assistance or some guidance or, you know, uh, insight into the, to the industry. You, know, you, you guys both were very good about that. So like when, when you first met Bob, uh, you know, he, that was back in the eighties, man. That was, that was kind of a heyday in LA for him. You know, oh yeah. He was busy. Yeah. He was, he was the place to go. He was the guy. Yeah. 
And it's just funny how those cycles go. You know, it's like, yeah, like you said, you, you know, working in Giardinelli uh, for all those years. Uh, so the, the East Coast and East Coast, West Coast thing. Um, but, uh, you know, with Bob, some of the people that, you know, that I know that, that have relationships with them during the years or impact over the years, they, they talk about his um, kind of taking the art of man, mouthpiece manufacturing and adding a little extra science to it, you know, that, that precision that he had as a machinist, uh, you know, that, that he, he started to think about things that other people weren't necessarily thinking were possible uh, because of, of the, their their technical limi limitations. They had the imagination, but not the technical chops to pull it off. Right. So uh, uh, were there any things that, that like that he did that, that kind of made you, that gave you a springboard for the stuff that you were later to do later on in your career? I'd like to say yes, but not really. I mean, you know, Bob was, you know, doing his thing and, <clears throat> excuse me, with the, screw rims and sleeves and stuff like that. But, you know, that stuff had been done. I mean, Giardinelli had a five-piece mouthpiece back when I was there in 79, you know, so there was nothing kind of like new under the sun. I think Bob was just a meticulous craftsman, which, you know, I, I have to respect that. I mean, you know, any time I see somebody that's really not just gifted at what they do, but really loves what they do, enjoys it every day and wants to do it the right way and that was the way, the way bob was you know he was showing me all about how he does his heat treating of his tooling and stuff like that i mean he was just a great guy and very not just informative but um <clears throat> that's the right word just gracious that's the best word but i'm just glad that you know i flew out there for bob's uh 45th anniversary of his company I was funny because, you know, I, I show up and he's like, oh, what are you doing in L.A.? I said, this. He goes, well, what, what are you going home? Went tomorrow morning. <laughs> and then I did it once again for his uh, 90th birthday, just not that many months ago. And it was nice. I got to hang out, you know, not just at the shop because, he, you know, his health was already failing. So we spent some time at the shop. But then we went back to his house and his met his brother, Al, very nice gentleman. And Bob, Al, and me you know, sat around and listened to Bob's absolutely unbelievable stereo system, by the way. It was, yeah, Bob had to show off. It was like, yeah, sit right here, sit right there. And he put on a CD. I was just like, really? Is, this, is that what a lot of money spent on a, on a stereo system really sounds like? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's better than earbuds any day. <laughs> better than the speakers in your pickup trucks, so. though. Well, no, not really. <laughs> I got an F-150. It's got a pretty good system. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, Bob, I, I think Bob definitely left a legacy in so many different ways uh, in terms of, uh, you know, some of the, the ways that, that he was able, like you said, there's nothing new under the sun, but just kind of uh, the way he had that kind of meticulous approach to things kind of set a, a standard for uh, other manufacturers to to kind of adhere to um, or rise up to yeah yeah you know i mean and look what he did with like valve alignments and stuff you know like getting that dialed in you know to a thousandth of an inch upstroke downstroke side stroke you know i mean no one else was really doing that and taking it to that level that bob did and everybody who's ever had a bob reeves valve, valve alignment 
knows there, it's a difference. You know what I mean? It's like factories, you know, that are mass producing stuff can only get it so close. You know, they don't take the extra time, the extra half an hour of fiddling and farting around with getting it absolutely right. And, and, and Bob was a genius at that stuff, no doubt about it. And I'm sure that, you know, Bob or uh, Snell, you know, who's taken it over has been the recipient of some wonderful knowledge. And I'm sure that he's going to, you know, do really well with the business because he's been there a number of years already. And I'm sure he's going to take it and do fine with it. You know, I certainly chatted with him already and wished him well. And there's nothing, nothing I can do to help them. You know what I'm saying? It's like they've, they've got everything under control. You know, Bob's finally got some good CNC computerized equipment. Of course, when Bob and I started CNC, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, here's a manual machine. You know how to make that thing work? You know, and it's like, but everybody's, you know, gotten like to, you know, more and better equipment, all the manufacturers, you know, really around the world, their ability to precision machine items, whether it's parts for trumpet, you know, like we're manufacturing a lot of the parts and pieces, you know, and, and I was actually, I was very flattered to just work with uh, Steve Shires was down here for a whole week and we machined all the parts and pieces for his, uh, trombone slide assembly, you know, the hand grip area and everything. And, you know, like you said, it's like, you know, 20 years ago, you, you couldn't get parts like that machine, like that good, right? That consistent, you know, where every one of them coming off the machine is checked. And it's like, yeah, that one's perfect next. And it was fun, but it, it's fun that we're able to, at this point in the industry, really make some good stuff. Yeah. You know, and, and, and Bob, I think, was saw that coming and was, you know, he, he understood it and he was all in favor of it. You know, I mean, doing everything manually and by hand is all well and good, but one at a time is, is not a business. You know, what I mean? it's a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's that level of inconsistency with it. I mean, even when you're trying to be as meticulous as possible, when you're doing that many it's kind of hard to, you know, if you're doing it by hand, there's, there's a greater margin of error. Oh yeah. It's virtually impossible to get it. I mean, even working with some of this computerized equipment, if you're not babysitting and paying attention, my friend, Mike Padula, the trumpet player machinist that, that taught me about computerized machining, he said it best. He goes, Terry, these machines can make a lot of really good parts and they can make a lot of really bad parts. <laughs> he said, don't ever trust that, that it's going to be fine. And uh, just a short story, I, I remember once in, at my old shop, had the machine running automatically, making trumpet tops out of a four foot bar. It was running like 40 pieces at a time or 41 or whatever it was. And I'm sitting out in the backyard, sun tanning was this Saturday. I'm listening to the machine. I'm thinking, isn't this wonderful, right? And I hear the machine finally stopped after an hour, hour and a half, whatever it was. I go inside. Well, about three parts in, the threading tool broke. So oh. I had, so I had a whole bunch of trumpet top blanks with no threads. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, Mike, you were right. You were right. Yeah. Like a lot of good parts, you can make a lot of bad parts.
Yeah, it's, it's kind of like you, you got that marriage of the, the technology, which makes it easier for us to do stuff. Then you've got the innovation, you know, the, the creativity uh, to figure out how to use the machinery and to use it in a better way or, you know, right. to, to help, you know, it, they work together synergistically. So, you know, when the limitations of what you can accomplish are, are taken away by that, that process, it, it, it frees you up to do that much more. And, um, yeah, yeah. No, that's very true. I mean, like the, the saxophone neck that I invented, it's like, you know, the summer people looked at it and they're like, well, it figures a trumpet player would figure out how to fix this thing. The reality is you guys never had the kind of equipment to be able to do the things that I'm doing with it. You just kept banging out sax necks like you have for the last 150 years because that's the way we always did it without thinking that you know maybe just because this was the way it was 100 years ago doesn't really make it right yeah you know and that's how i've always approached it like the uh, slot receiver that we put on our trumpets now it's like what nobody thought of that well i guess not because that's not how it was done yeah you know, and so, yeah, like you, like you just said, you know, now that we have equipment that can precision make parts like that, it opens up your mind to say, well, what can I do with this? Yeah. You know, how can I look at this and say, wow, I could make a part that's better than, you know, what came off a of steel mandrel inconsistently, you know, for the last 150 years. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just like when you were saying about like Bob and, and the, uh, the valve alignment. Um, you know, for every trumpet that's coming out, even, you know, even though they're great trumpets, you know, uh, sometimes because of the mass manufacturing, as you said, the, the tolerances may not be exactly the way that they were intended to be. And just having someone to have the, not, a, not even the insight, just the common sense to go, you know, <laughs> we, this, this is a, this is a problem and, and sure the horn's going to play okay. But it's not going to be able to be played at its highest level if this isn't addressed. So here's a solution to this this problem. So um, well, that's the gift. That's the gift that Bob had. Is like he saw that it was a problem, but he had the wisdom to know how to fix it and how to fix it consistently. You know, with shims that are like a thousandth of an inch thick, like a, the skinniest piece of cellophane in the world, but every one of them makes a difference in in the actual final analysis and i think you know and, and bob had that vision that like not just here's the problem but here's how i can fix the problem yeah you know and then he ran with that and god bless i mean he, he, how many trumpets has he done over the years good god wow well, well, a lot yeah a lot yeah i i, I had a an old colicchio that that i got a, an avowal i on and i was amazed at how it changed not i mean not just the action of the vowels but it, the intonation <clears throat> way the way the horn slot it was just different completely different oh yeah oh absolutely there's no doubt about it i mean it's not like a not like voodoo it, it's actually a mechanically correct way to do the thing right and yeah, that because... was one of that was one of bob's gifts for sure Hey, because you're talking about, you know, especially you, know, you talk about your embouchure, you know, the, the difference between, you know, being able to play a low C and a, and a double high C isn't 
you know, this much, you know, it's, it's microns of a difference, you know, in the size of your aperture to, to do that. So, you know, everything about playing the trumpet is about very, very strict tolerances and adjustments in those. And I think sometimes, you know, we start to lose sight of that in, uh, in the manufacturing process. Uh, some people lose sight because it's uh, mass production versus really high quality control. And when you can get that in line together, the quality control, the mass production and the innovation, the willingness to try and find a new way to do things, and I think that's when the magic happens. Yeah, I mean, what you were just saying, I tell people, I said, I'm in the only industry where one thousandth of an inch is about this big. You know, and I mean, in terms of some of the people like the mouthpiece is two thousandths bigger. What What's two thousandths? It's like two thirds of one of these hairs is two thousandths of an inch. I said, and yes, that made a difference. You know, and I mean, how many other industries are like that? I mean. You know, people say, well, you're not, you know, making a, a, a rocket ship or anything. It's like, no, we're a little more precise than that. <laughs> and being down there in Florida, you would know all about that. Man, we just had a launch yesterday or this morning or whatever. They, I think SpaceX has sent up four rockets this month. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, we hear it all the time. You know, everything starts rumbling. The, 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 the windows start shaking. And we're miles away from, you know, we're 15 miles as the crow flies. And yet you still feel when those rockets go up. Man, that's a lot of power. A lot of power. Yeah, it's crazy. So uh, what, if, if you had to like kind of encapsulate what you see Bob's influence on the trumpet world as being, like the legacy that he's, he's leaving for uh, the current generation, you know, people like, like you, or the up-and-coming generation of uh, manufacturers, what do you see as, as the legacy that, that he's leaving for others to, to aspire to? I, I think he was really the first guy to really concentrate on consistent quality. And that's something that we all have to emulate, you know, and, and try to achieve in our day-to-day -day manufacturing. You know, we're forever, like, checking parts and, you know, Every, everywhere you turn in the shop, we've got a dial caliper that, you know, that measures a thousandth of an inch just to check everything. I know the first time I went to a machine shop, you know, when I started doing mouthpieces, I had a drawing of, of what I wanted to make. And the guy looks at me and, I, and he goes, all right, that dimension's uh, 0.453, 453,000. So I'm like, uh-huh, yeah. And he goes, plus or minus how much? I went, what? Plus or minus? No, no, 453. And I, and the, and the, being a machinist, he's like, okay, here's how this world really works. Plus or minus 10 thousands is one price. Plus or minus two thousands is a lot higher price. Plus or minus no thousands. He goes, that's really hard. <laughs> and I was so clueless. I'm like, well, no, it, no, 453, that's the size it should be. So when people start here at the shop, like even these young kids, when I show them a part and I measure it, I don't tell them anything about plus or minus. Here's the part and it has to be 453,000. That's actually the part on the backboard that we inscribed the name mm -hmm. because once it's being held in the chuck, if it's less or more than that, 
it changes how it holds it. So it's like, no, no, it's 453. You know, and that's the thing I think that, that Bob was really one of the first to take it to that level. You know, where like, for example, the sleeves that he makes, they have to be perfect. They're not close, they're not sloppy, they, you know, they don't leak air, they're right. And that's, and I mean, even now, if, if when we try to make some sleeves to fit on Reeves' mouthpieces, that's a bitch. <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, it's got to be right. It's got to be slip fit, perfect, airtight, like a damn trumpet piston. You know, that's the right way to do it. And and Bob, I mean, Bob had it all figured out. Yeah. So, yeah, he's going to be missed. He's, been, you know, uh, I think a positive influence in the mouthpiece world. He wasn't selling voodoo. He wasn't selling this week's magic high note mouthpiece. You know, he never did any of that. He simply made a good quality product. He had players go to him as we do here. They tell him, you know, it's like, well, what don't you like about the one you've got now? And let me see if I can do something that fixes that. Maybe I can, maybe I can't. That's why I ended up getting Rosalino playing on one of our pieces. I bet him I could make one that played better than his. And he looked at me and goes, well, I played this one here for 22 years. What do you think you can do? And I went, well, if I can't do anything, then you don't have to pay anything. He went, all right, I'll come by your shop. <laughs> and when I finished, he walked out and he goes, you're right. Yours plays better. And here's my old mouthpiece of 22 years. You hold on to it. And I still have that piece, by the way. Very flattering to you know, have a guy like that at the end of the session say, yeah, you're right. It's better. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of level that, that, that Bob took the industry to that forced everybody else along. Yeah. Because if you weren't going to do it, someone else is going to do it. Yeah. And I think, it, I think it's, I, like I said, I think he was a, a positive original influence, you know, even more so than, um, you know, than Bach or Schilke or Giardinelli, you know, who they were also made mouthpieces, but Bob was, that was him. That's what he did. And he did it really well. Everyone in the industry had to start small and Bob was no exception. What started out as a one man operation eventually grew much in part to the help of our final guest on this episode, Mr. K.O. Skinsness. K.O. started out as a customer, became a friend, and then an employee of Bob. And in this discussion, K.O. is going to share a little bit about the process of helping Bob to grow his business, the impact that Bob's methodology and work ethic has had on him, and a lot of great anecdotes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I hope you enjoy this segment. So KO, uh, you have a long history with Bob and, um, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for you taking some time with us, but, um, you know, kind of, can you give me kind of some backstory of how you, how you two 
met and, and the relationship and how, uh, how he was a part of your life and, and what that meant to you? Sure. I'll try to make, I'll try to make a long story medium. Okay. So the first time I ever heard of Bob Reeves was probably in 1975. I was living in Hawaii and Johnny Madrid came over. People don't know who Johnny Madrid was. He was an amazing trumpet player. And there's actually a video I did on my personal channel about him, which is pretty cool if people want to check it out. Um, anyway, Johnny was in Hawaii and he told me, he says, you got to get a Bob Reeves mouthpiece. And I go, okay, who's Bob Reeves? And he started describing it to me. And I started, I was a kid then. And I started talking to other trumpet players. Oh yeah, Bob Reeves. So in the beginning to me, Bob Reeves was a guru, a mouthpiece guru in a far off land, Los Angeles. And back then, you know, Bob was in Hollywood at his shop. I don't even know if he had a secretary at that time, but so I tried to call and I, I placed an order for the mouthpiece I thought I wanted. And I waited one month, two months, three months, five months. And I'm not getting this mouthpiece. And I'm asking Johnny, I go, man, am I ever going to get this mouthpiece? He goes, well, he goes, that's kind of how it is. Bob's really busy and he's a one-man shop. And if you go there, he takes care of you. And so that's why, you know, other things, you know, he, he was a custom mouthpiece maker. He wasn't trying to set up a business, you know, to make a million dollars. He was trying to make custom mouthpieces for guys. So finally, Johnny went back to LA and went to the shop and got my mouthpiece and brought it back. So that's how I first learned about Bob Reeves and knew about him. He was this guru in a far off land. And then I came to visit LA and I got to go there. And did you ever go to a shop in Hollywood? I was never fortunate enough to do that. So it was a really small shop, very small shop. And it was very long and narrow. And you'd walk in the front door and there was this little tiny waiting area. And in front of you was a door that was locked. And to your left was a little window with a sliding glass. So you go in there and if you're KO from Hawaii, you're in the front room and you don't know what to do, right? Do you knock? Do you, what do you do? Then after a little while, at that point, he did have a secretary and she came to the window. What do you want? Blah, blah, blah. But you didn't get to go in the back. You know, that was for Doc Severinsons of the world and, you know, people that at least that's how I perceived it. And I was kind of afraid, you know, and then. At some point, Bob would come to the window and he was a very soft-spoken man and very, no, what do you want, blah, blah, blah. And then he'd go back and do the work and come back and you'd pay and you'd leave. And then when I moved to Los Angeles after college, um, I went there and I kind of talked to him some more and we became friends. And eventually I got to be one of those guys that got to go behind you know, the door and hang out. And that's when we really became friends um, and we would go to lunch sometimes, but I was really a customer, but I was fascinated by what he knew and his machining. And he had a lot of anecdotes about the world. And so we became friends. And then I was, I was trying to make a living as a trumpet player, but working at a managing a music store. And um, that was going south because the owner and I had different ideas about, you know, how, how things should go in this and that. So I'm looking around for what can I do? And I always thought Bob was sort of the unsung hero of everything because here he was doing this, this great work, this innovative work, was very helpful, but I just didn't feel enough people knew about him. And so I thought, man, he could use some help and I could use a new job. <laughs> so I started talking to him about it. And, you know, there's some things that made sense. I had some 
marketing skills and computer skills. And so eventually, um, to be honest, he hired me on and he couldn't afford to, to hire me on because he had another secretary and he had Jose was working for him part-time, but he did it, I, I think, to help me out. And then uh, it grew from there. We did some marketing, started getting more um, successful. And then we moved up to Valencia, it's a larger shop. And we hired some more people. They're still there today. And, and then in 2008, after we had worked together with uh, the guys at Stomvi on the V-Raptor trumpet, that was a project between Vicente at Stomvi, Bob Reeves, Carlos Morales, who's my partner today, and myself on the V-Raptor. Um, I'd been studying acoustics and I kind of had, I kind of wanted to explore a different direction. And I, I remember sitting in the front room with Bob one day talking about stuff. And he says, you know, he says, you should go explore what you want to do. And so with his blessing, you know, I went and came over to Stomvi. And so that was sort of the, I guess, the end of our professional relationship because I wasn't working with him anymore. But we remained friends. But even though the shop's only about seven or eight miles from here, it's the way life is nowadays, I'd see him when I see you once or twice a year at a show. Right. Was that too long and rambling? Oh, absolutely not. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's funny um, how, you know, when we get to these points in our lives, when, when uh, our paths start to kind of diverge a little bit, um, even though you have the best intentions of, you know, staying in touch and stuff like that, you know, life just kind of starts taking on its own, rhythm and a lot of times you know people that will sometimes we see people that live halfway across the country more than we see someone who lives down the block from us i know it's weird huh yeah but uh yeah the, the one thing that always struck me about bob and as part of the reason i wanted to do this this episode is kind of a tribute to him is uh yeah i didn't know him well you know personally uh you know just kind of the casual meet at at the at one of the hangs at the at one of the conferences but what always struck me about him and what everyone has confirmed is that he was just always willing to share uh, insights and inspiration and, you know, to, to provide some level of support, moral support to people to follow their dreams and to, uh, you know, to give them some encouragement to forge their path. Uh, so, like, when, when you were working with him, um, were there like any instances that pop up in your head where, I mean, obviously the one where you're just talking about where he kind of said, you know, it, you need to follow your, your, your mission. Um, do you have any, any times where, where you can kind of point to and say, yeah, you know, this, this was like a perfect example of, of the mentor Bob, uh, you know, and how he approached that aspect of, of, uh, his profession. A perfect example, maybe not, but I mean, I, <clears throat> So Bob, by the time I got to know him as a friend and then to work with him, by that time, Bob had figured out a lot of stuff as far as mouthpieces and trumpets and trumpet players and all that kind of stuff. So he had strong opinions about it. And <clears throat> I think in the world, a lot of times, people with strong opinions are thought to be arrogant, but I don't believe that's the case. If you have a strong opinion and 
you can back it up with, hey, the reason I believe this is because of this, 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 this. The other person doesn't have to agree with you, but doesn't mean that someone's arrogant. So I, so Bob did have strong opinions. And I remember sometimes the guys would come in and they, Bob, you know, come in and just drill this mouthpiece out. Well, he didn't want to just do that unless he could explain to them what he knew and what might happen. Because once you drill the mouthpiece out, you're not undrilling it. And I remember one day he'd talked to somebody for quite a while and he said, yeah, he goes, I know that guy was getting bored is eyes were rolling back and forth. He says, but I don't ever want someone to come back a month later and say, Hey, you didn't tell me that. So he was always, like you said, giving, he wanted to tell people what he knew, not to say, Hey, look what I know, but it was to help them play better. Cause ultimately if you're working in this business, you're not doing it to be a millionaire. Trust me. You're doing it because you love the trumpet. You love trumpet players. Well, not all trumpet players. No, you love trumpet players and, and you really want to help them because when you go to hear them play, you want to enjoy the concert. And if you helped a little bit for that, boy, it's a very satisfying feeling. And I know Bob felt that way all the time. I remember in that period where I was, you know, exploring whether I could get a job with him, you know, I was there hanging out one day on my day off from the music store and I was in the back and there was some guy up front playing you know, trying mouthpieces. And this guy sounded horrible. I mean, it was just, it was painful to listen. It was just so bad. I don't know who it was. It was just horrible. And I remember looking at Bob and saying, how, how can you handle this? And he looked at me and he says, you never know when the light's going to come on. He says, that guy doesn't sound so good today, but he might sound like Lynn Nicholson next week. Or Doc Severson, he goes, so you got to treat everybody the same way, give them the same information, and then they make the decisions. E everyone comes in with a problem. You know, they want to play higher, they want to sound better, they want to do this, they want to do that. And Bob truly wanted to solve their problem. And it didn't matter if, if he made a dime or a hundred dimes. It didn't matter. He wanted, because he's a problem solver. Mm -hmm. He was... um. You know, he was trained in the, in the Navy as a machinist at China Lake. He was a real machinist. I mean, this was, they were making rocket nozzles, you know, test rocket nozzles that would take a month to make. And in machining, you talk about tolerances, you know, how much plus or minus. And they'd be working at, you know, minus zero plus 50 millionths of an inch. And he'd spend a month working on these rocket nozzles. Then he'd put them on the test the test rig and blow them up in 10 minutes. So when he got out of that and went to work at Lockheed and stuff, he was an incredible machinist and a trumpet player. Um, so then he, I think it was Lockheed he was working at and he quit Lockheed because he didn't like what was going on there. And he went to work for Carol Proviance. And I have a little treat for you if you'd like to see it. So in preparation for this, I started going through some of my archives. Okay. And I found some unreleased video of Bob Reeves and I cut together a short little thing. It's about a minute and a half okay. of him explaining starting when he went to work for Carol Proviance, making mouthpieces and what ensued in the next year or so. Would you like to see it? Oh, I'd love to. Okay, here we go. If I can make this work, everything should be good. Because of my background, I was able to understand 
and do the uh, machine work that Bernays needed to make mouthpieces. But uh, as time went on, and he uh, <clears throat> wasn't capable of working with players, I had to start working with him. And uh, I, I realized after a while that I didn't have any answers at all to help these players who came in looking for anything. And I didn't know how to interpret or uh, provide what they were looking for. And so then I realized I didn't know anything. That I could do machine work really great, but I didn't know anything about mouthpieces and trumpets. And uh, <clears throat> that's where I really started to explore and keep track and measure uh, all kinds of equipment and uh, sit down and, and look at the information. And, and at the time I started, I was seeing some of the finest players maybe ever in the world coming to uh, get help. And I surely knew that I couldn't uh, tell them to go home and practice. I had to provide something on the spot. Because many of them were going to work <clears throat> around the corner of Paramount Studio. They just stopped in looking for, for some help before they went to work. I couldn't give them a product or anything that wasn't going to work that day. So, I mean, that shows a lot about Bob because it shows his humility. <clears throat> and I remember him telling me that story a little bit differently that he said, I went to work for Carol Provence and in 45 minutes I was making mouthpieces because making a mouthpiece is a lot easier than making a rocket nozzle. Mm -hmm. But he said a year and a half later, the light came on that I hadn't made a mouthpiece yet. He'd made a bunch of parts, but he hadn't solved a problem. Right. And right. You know, that again, it shows his inquisitiveness, his uh, humility. So it was here, here he was, like he described, he's on Ridgewood Place and Paramount Studios was right around the corner. And this is in the mid seventies. This is when things were, there were a lot of studio gigs, a lot going on, a lot of trumpet players. And when he's talking about some of the greatest trumpet players, you know, he's talking about Chuck Finley and, you know, uh, Jerry Hay and Gary Grant and all these guys. And they'd come in and he'd make them a mouthpiece or adjust a mouthpiece. Hey, this is great. And they'd go to work and it'd be fine. But they'd come back maybe a month later or something, two weeks later. And they, they'd want an adjustment to the mouthpiece. And he'd adjust it and they'd go away and they'd come back. They want another adjustment. So Bob, wanting to solve problems and being inquisitive, is asking himself, how come the greatest trumpet players in the world are coming here leaving with a mouthpiece, they sound like Gabriel, and they're coming back a few weeks later and they want a different mouthpiece. It didn't make sense to him because the metal of the mouthpiece isn't changing. So Bob had also worked at Ben's Trumpets, so he knew how trumpets were made too. And he started realizing that the only thing that could be changing other than the mouthpiece or the trumpet getting dirty and the player changing a little bit was the alignment of the valves because of the pad material drifting depending on how much spitter oil's on it or what the temperature's like. And that's when he started experimenting with valve alignment, which, you know, is one of the big contributions Bob gave to the trumpet world is valve alignment. And it, it's just his inquisitiveness and his scratching his head and his, 
You know, what can we do better? And that's just how he was, aside from being a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that I think is, is so interesting to me is um, that problem solver mindset. I mean, that maybe it's because I kind of have that same kind of personality and I, I like to dive into things and, you know, not just know that something works, but understand why it works or, or why it only works in this situation and becoming very analytical about those things. And, you know, uh, people like Bob, uh, you know, yourself, uh, that, that freedom of that understanding and then the willingness to share that wisdom with people uh, and all with the intent of just helping someone get better at what they're doing, which is to play the trumpet. Because, you know, the more obstacles we can remove from, from you know, getting our idea out of our head and out the horn, then the more enjoyable the process is. So, um, like, for, for yourself, when, when, you were, when you were working with him, um, how did that impact you in terms of the way that you now approach you, how you approach your business, you know, from, uh, you know, when you started your own, your own gig with us uh, Well, see, I, I come from a background. My father was a brilliant, uh, pathologist and, um, he, he used to t teach, you know, 600 level pathology courses and stuff at the university of Hawaii. And he would be a PhD, he'd have PhD candidates that he worked with. And he used to give PhD exams. Now we're talking about people doing stuff in, you know, biology, right? Pathology and immunology and all that kind of stuff. And they'd come in for oral exams and he'd ask them questions about architecture. Because he said, the point of getting a PhD is not understanding the sex life of a paramecium. The point of being a PhD is being able to solve a problem. Whether it's a problem about architecture or plumbing or the trumpet mouthpiece or whatever. So I came with that personality that you described, you have with wanting to be a, a problem solver and wanting to understand how this stuff works. Now, had I realized how crazy this trumpet thing is when you start getting, I, you know, I might've said, what am I crazy? I, let me, let me go work at tower records. But so, so I think Bob and I worked together well as a team because he certainly had all the machining skills and a lot, not a lot of knowledge of working with trumpet player by the time I got there. And I fit in with the problem solving thing and also trying to, well, what can we do to uh, let more people know about you? It's called marketing um, and see if other people like your product. Cause my whole thing is if, if Bob makes a mouthpiece or I make a mouthpiece or Terry, any, whatever mouthpiece or trumpet, I don't know if you Jose are going to like it. I just want you to try it. If you try it and you don't like it. Okay. You tried it. So my goal at Bob's was let's get more people to be aware of what's going on here and let's raise the bar, right? If you raise the bar in the industry, the only thing that happens is we get better players and better music. And ultimately it's about better music, right? Because ultimately whatever we do, it's for the audience. If we don't have an audience. We don't have a job. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And, you know, you said, yeah, like uh, you, you mentioned the, you know, like the Jerry Hayes, Chuck Finley's, uh, Gary Grant's popping into the shop, um, being in, in, uh, in the LA area, you know, Johnny Madrid, 
uh, phenomenal player. If anybody does not hit the Johnny, definitely check out uh, some of the work that he did and uh, KO that that uh, uh, little documentary thing that you have. Is uh, I've watched it a few times. It's great stuff. Um, but uh, and it's got Bob Reeves in it. Yeah, and that's right. But uh, I mean, who are like who are some of the other people that that would just you know you would see kind of passing through uh through the reeve shop from time to time you know doc was there of course um i got a couple canadian brass stories that come to mind if you want to hear those sure uh absolutely it's okay. the exchange rate on canadian brass stories these days what's that what's the exchange rate on the canadian brass stories? i have no idea I, i'm not sure how many bitcoins it is but uh well so two come to mind um one of them was Ronnie Rom came in and Bob was going to make him a mouthpiece. And Bob and I were both going to go hear him at the ambassador auditorium. So Bob said, okay, I'll finish the mouthpiece and I'll bring it to the, to the gig. Okay, fine. So we, Bob and I drove separately. And I remember I was sitting in the audience on this side and Bob was sitting on the aisle on the other side and the Canadian brass, you know, would often walk in through the, through the audience to start the show. And we went separate, but we both got there kind of late. So Bob's sitting in the aisle and the, the brass starts playing and they start walking down the aisle. And as Ronnie Rom passes by Bob, he holds his, he holds his trumpet one-handed and he puts his hand out and Bob puts the mouthpiece in his hand, right? And when he gets a break, he takes the mouthpiece out of his horn, pulls his one in, puts it in and played the whole show on the new mouthpiece. Oh man, that's a great story. And the other one was, I was living in Long Beach for most of the time I was working with Bob. It's a long commute. And so I would try to get in early, start around seven. So I could leave at three or so and maybe miss traffic, especially if I had a gig on the weekend or something. So it was a Friday and I got there at about seven. I think Bob showed up around eight and about five minutes after eight, they're pounding on the door and I opened the door and it's Jens Lindemann, Ronnie Rahm and Chuck Dahlenbach from Canadian brass. I told these stories out of order. This was the first time I actually met those three guys. So they come in at eight in the morning and Jens has got, you know, a bunch of trumpet cases and Dahlenbach's got his tuba and uh, Jens wants three or four alignments and Dahlenbach wants an alignment on his tuba and Ronnie Rom wants a couple custom mouthpieces. And they're playing that night in Cerritos. <clears throat> and so once, you know, Bob figured everything they wanted, Bob looks at me and he says, well, he says, do you think you can handle the trumpets if I do the trombone alignment and the two custom mouthpieces? I go, sure, let's give it a shot. So this is before cell phones. So Bob looks at those guys, they're all friends, and he goes, all right, get out of here. If you want us to get this done, get out of here. And I was going to deliver the horns to the show that night. Okay, fine. Well, again, they didn't know who I was. I'm some guy working with Bob. And they leave all these horns there. So... <laughs> I show up at the artist entrance at like about 5.30 or 6. They got like a 7.30 downbeat. And the three of them are outside and they're pacing back and forth and looking at their watches. And one of them smoking a cigarette. You know, I drive up with all the horns. And of course, they played a great show. Um, those were the kinds of things that, you know, happened all the time. Um, just kind of crazy things, you know. And people would come in on there and come in just for lunch. And I, I mean, name a player back at that time, you know. Uh, 
And, and, you know, some of the best players that came in are the players you never heard of. You know, we all have regional players that are incredible, but <clears throat> they didn't make it famous, you know? Yeah. Um, I remember Gary Grant coming in a few times, both in the Hollywood shop and then in the Valencia shop. I mean, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and a lot of them before I was working there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like uh, you know, you if you are like if you're in New York and you uh you go to like Josh Landris's shop, you know, you never know who you're gonna run into there. You know, right. there's, there's gonna be uh you know, a high school kid or a college kid in there checking out horns, and then you know, you you'll you'll get some of the biggest names uh, you know, the in, in the New York scene or you know, even globally, you know, they're in town. It's like, okay, we're gonna go into the Lancers shop and and check out some horns and and try some stuff out. So yeah, it it, it has to be really cool to uh to be in that environment where um where you just never know what's gonna happen. You know? Yeah. I I mean and you, you have a lot of days that are just normal days, but every yeah. once in a while, you know, there's something that that's a lot of fun. Um and you know that's part of why we do it. Yeah. Well, and even like, you know, when we're, when we're at events, it's, that's the thing, you know, that, that you're, you're at a booth and you have a lot of people that are, you know, the average player. And then, uh, you have a, a big name player come up, but it's the, the attitude of, you know, the, the experienced people, you know, people like Bob, people like you, uh, you know, uh, Terry and, you know, other people that, that I know really well, it's like, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, who you are. You're, every every person is treated with respect and uh there's a bond and there's you know it's like oh you know you're a trumpet player and you know hey let's have some fun and enjoy ourselves so i i think that that's so crucial and and especially even from a business perspective you know when when you don't set yourself up as being an elitist you know that that you're just you know you're here to provide a service for for somebody who loves what they do and you just want to help them to, to be able to love it that much more. Well, sure. You know, I was being at conferences. I remember this one conference, Bob and I, um, the exhibits closed for the day. So we're going to go up to the, to our rooms, right? Put our stuff down and go get dinner. So we get in the elevator on the ground floor. First one's in the elevator. We're standing against the back wall, you know, and, uh, Bob's standing over here and I'm standing here. We go up a flight or two and, another an older trumpet player gets in gets in the the elevator and i see him glance over at bob and he glances at me now bob had a jacket on that was covering his name tag and my name tag was out so remember the guy look gets you know the, the elevator door opens you don't go in immediately you don't know what's going on in there right so he glances at bob he glances at me he comes in he turns around he's standing in front he's standing in front of bob and Elevator doors close and he turns and he looks at me and he says, you work at Bob Reeves? And I go, yeah. He goes, whatever happened to that guy? And Bob says, oh, the bastard died. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the guy goes, huh, and he got off the elevator. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. I like that one. Um, so, you know, if, if, if you're thinking kind of um, globally um, in terms of like looking at, at the history uh, that, that Bob has had in the industry and the impact that he made, um, 
what what would be like the the one or two big things that, that you would be able to point to and say, yeah, I think this is kind of this kind of encapsulates the legacy of Bob Reeves. <clears throat> well, if I have to say it in one phrase, I'm going to say he's the greatest mouthpiece maker that's ever lived. But then I have to. That doesn't mean other people can't make great mouthpieces. They can. But the reason I make that statement about Bob is not just because of mouthpieces. It's what we alluded to before. He was like the one of the first guys on the scene. I mean, there was, you know, Bert Herrick was there and Carol Proviance and they did their stuff. And, <clears throat> you know, Bob Giardinelli in New York and other people that aren't coming to mind right now. Um, but I, but Bob came at it from not only a high-end machinist standpoint, but again, solving problems. So he's the first guy that I know of that really started studying and getting into valve alignment. That's a big tool if you're trying to solve people's problems, a huge tool. Um, Bob, having worked with Carol Proviance, Carol Proviance, um, from what Bob told me, had incredible ears. And Carol Proviance figured out a lot of things that from science, we know what they were doing now. One of the things was Carol made solid shank mouthpieces, but he had two shank sizes, an A shank and a B shank. <clears throat> and the A shank would now be what Bob Reeve calls a number four, and the B shank was a number five. So the five would go in a little bit further, a little bit less gap. And people thought that the, the five, the B meant Bach, you use this for Bach trumpets and the A for everything else, but Carol thought of it as for Benj trumpets. But the point was, it was a different gap, and Carol heard the difference. And Bob, working with Carol and seeing that and hearing that, said, well, this seems kind of important. And he took it to another level when he developed the sleeve system to be able to adjust the gap, you know, throughout the whole range. And he ran into, along the way, a guy by the name of Bill Cardwell, who was really the the scientists that put the final nail in the coffin about how to use science to design trumpets and mouthpieces that play better, easier and sound better. And he did a lot of collaboration with, with Cardwell. And I studied the acoustic side of things with Cardwell for about 15 years. And so if, if you look at Bob's machining skills, the valve alignment, his gap work, um, and the problem solving thing, all these things really changed the, the industry. I mean, they, they, they really did. And for myself, these are all tools. Adjusting the gap is a tool to help somebody. Doing a valve alignment is a tool. You know, if anyone, if someone knew Bob and had any amount of conversation with him, they're gonna complete the sentence I'm about to say. But Bob used to always say, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Sometimes he used different words, but let's just leave it at that. Because it was about solving the problem. And you can't have one solution for everybody. And that was one of the reasons Bob would take time to talk to somebody, because you have to, every trumpet player comes at this differently from their experiences, from who they studied with, from how they feel, <clears throat> their perception of sound. In the beginning, you got to have a conversation and figure out what do each other mean? If someone says this feels stuffy, what does he really mean? If someone says this is a dark sound, what does he really mean? Yeah. So I, I really, I mean, I've said it a lot that I do believe he's the greatest mouthpiece maker that's ever lived. And, you know, at the beginning of his career, because John Kleiman 
Bob studied with John Kleiman, who was, you know, first trumpet at uh, 20th Century Fox for a number of years, 20 years, I think, or something like that. Um, you know, Bob was going to school, LA City College, playing trumpet in the band, doing side jobs, machining, and doing some stuff for John Kleiman, mouthpiece work. And after a while, John Kleiman realized that, hey, this guy knows what, what's going on. And John Kleiman said to Bob, I think this was 64 or something, he says, hey, what, what would it cost for you to get the machinery that you really need to really start doing mouthpieces? And Bob said, well, I think about 14 or 1500 bucks to get this Logan lathe. <clears throat> and so John Kleiman wrote him a check right on the spot and said, here, go get that lathe. He says, there's a few old men in this town making mouthpieces and pretty soon you're going to be the only one left. And I, depending on how many people you count back then, you had Bert Herrick, you had Carol Proviance, and we can include Dominic Colicchio because he made some mouthpieces, although that he was more of a trumpet guy. So that's where Bob started the business was with the lathe that John Kleiman gave him the money for, but Bob eventually, you know, you know, paid him back. Right. And so it, it, it's all this, I kind of lost my trend of thought, but it's this inquisitiveness and well, in the little clip I showed of him, it, it's okay to be wrong or to make a mistake or think something today, but you learn more and you find out, well, maybe that wasn't so cool does that mean that was bad no it's what we knew at the time yeah you know and and that's i think when you come from uh the perspective of like you know him being a trained machinist you know being in, in that kind of environment uh you know if you come from a scientific environment like you, you know growing up with a father who's you know uh, a pathologist um you understand that in sciences that there is no absolute, you know, it's like, this is what we know right now. And it's a constant search for a better and deeper understanding of, of what we think we know, you know, we're, we're looking to, we, we're constantly testing hypotheses. And the part of that is inherently failure. Yeah, you, you got to make some mistakes before you, you kind of dial it in and you figure out what actually uh, needs to happen. And then, you know, obviously as technologies change, you know, like you're talking about cell phones, you know, uh, back then, you know, the, what we thought was impossible is now commonplace, you know, so as, as our knowledge is, and things change, so do, do our approaches have to change? Yes. The, the key part of this that I think is often lost is in order to see the future or hear the future in this case, you need to understand the past. There's no reason to redo a bunch of science that's been done if it's there. Because um, the idea with any science, of course, is you find where the prior art is and you start there and try to improve. It's right. the same with trumpet playing. If the greatest trumpet player in the world is this person and you want to be a better trumpet player, you want to start there. Mm -hmm. That's who you need to, that's who you, you should always look to the best players. You know, don't feel good. Oh, I'm better than the guy next to me. Okay, great. Are you as good as that guy? And it's not a matter of putting yourself down. It's a matter of trying to strive for something better. Otherwise, why do it? Yeah. You know, we could all, I, I'd be willing to bet all of us could stop making trumpets and mouthpieces. And there's enough trumpets and mouthpieces in the world to keep everyone busy. But the point is, can we do something better? Can we work with the player and make it fit them better, you know? Yeah. Well, like, you know, like you said, uh, you know, at the very beginning of our talk about, uh, 
you know, thinking about Bob as like this, you know, trumpet guru that's, you know, in uh, LA, you know, this, this, this man, mystery man of, uh, of knowledge and power. Um, and that's, yeah, it's kind of, uh, you know, in, in some state, some ways people just, you know, they want to purchase, like, I want to purchase a mouthpiece. Uh, but I've seen it more now that people are looking at the mouthpiece as part of a, a, a piece of the puzzle. And they're trying to solve that puzzle of how do I become a better player? And as a manufacturer or as a salesperson or, you know, whatever aspect you're in, you need to be able to answer questions. You need to be able to problem solve. And, um, I know from my own personal experience, uh, like working shows, uh, like it's so important to talk to people and understand what it is that they're looking for or, and what they think they're looking for and learn to kind of get inside their head to, to figure out then what to give them, how to give them the best advice possible, uh, as opposed to, oh, just buy this. This is my most popular brand or take this one because it's the one I, I've got 30,000 of in stock and I need to get rid of it. Uh, so it's, it's taking the time to really try to solve the individual's problem. And, uh, yeah, it, it, Bob certainly left a legacy, uh, with that, I believe. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. He, he killed a lot of sales by solving someone's problem easily, but it didn't matter. Cause you know, in the long run, now you've got a customer. Now you've helped somebody, you know, obviously anyone who's doing this for a living, you got to make sales or you can't pay the rent, you know, but your goal doesn't have to be to make sales. Your goal can be to, to raise the, the bar of trumpet playing of musicianship, you know, cause some of, you know, there've been bad trumpet players that make great music. Oh, that's very true. Right. And, and great trumpet players that don't make so great music. So, you know, what, what, do, what do you want? There's, there's value in both. I'd rather hear the good music, but that's me. Yeah, I'd rather hear a great player making great music. Oh, there's that too. Yes, that's always the best. Yeah, that, that's, that's the best, best of both worlds. But uh, yeah, I mean, and, and like you were saying earlier about, uh, you know, that, that thing that Bob said to you is like, you never know when the light's going to go on. And that's, that's so true. You never, you never know who the next Doc Severinsen or, 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 you know, however you want to think about it, who the next really phenomenal trend setting, you know, bar setting player is going to be, or the next great educator for that matter, who's going to be, you know, the person who's on the fence that maybe by helping them with their playing, they're going to become uh, a great educator and they're going to teach thousands of, of students who are going to then, you know, change the, the world of music. You just never know. So, uh, you know, when you treat everybody uh, like they are the most important person, then and their problem is the most important problem, then you know you're you're doing something for humanity. Sure, and you feel better about yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you make a million dollars. Well, I'm still waiting for that part, but you know, I'm still young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sixty-four. I'm still young. Yeah, come on, come on. We're still young. Yeah. All right. So, um, Kale, I guess, yeah, the, the final question, I guess, would be, you know, if there is one thing that you would be able to say is like, you know, hey, for the for the the new generation of trumpet mouthpiece manufacturers, because we're always going to have new people that are coming up, you know, uh, what would be the, the one thing that you would say, if you're going to aspire to be like Bob, this is the lesson you need to pay attention to. 
Oh, wow. Um, well, so, so here's the good, the good part and the bad part. It's really easy nowadays to learn how to make a trumpet mouthpiece or something that looks like a trumpet mouthpiece because we have CNC machining that's much easier to use, much affordable, much more affordable. We have user-friendly CAD computer-aided design programs. We have, it's easy to scan existing mouthpieces and, you know, alter them. And within a, a short period of time and a, not much training, you got a machine that's spitting out mouthpieces, but it goes back to that Carol Proviance thing. Are you really making and designing a new mouthpiece? You know, even a blind squirrel catches a nut from time to time. And so you can take that, you know, 10,000 monkeys typing on keyboards and eventually you get Shakespeare <clears throat> approach, which is a shot in the dark approach. Um, I, I, I'm guessing, but I think Bob would say you got to study the past. You got to, you got to study <clears throat> what's been done, why it was done. Um, and I'm going to say you can't do it with a mechanical analysis. The problem, the thing that makes acoustics difficult for us to understand is we can't see the sound wave. You can't see it. We can imagine airflow, but we can't see the sound wave. And so you kind of got to, if you're a trumpet player, which seems to be what most of the, well, I was a trumpet player first too. And then you're, you know, I want to make mouthpieces, right? Because that guy's got to be making a million dollars. So I'm going to make mouthpieces. Um, you got to forget, I know what Bob would say. Bob would say, don't use your own experience as a trumpet player to design mouthpieces. Because you're going to design mouthpieces that work good for you. So my, maybe I, my definition of a great mouthpiece designer is someone who's designed a diverse line of mouthpieces that cover a large, a very expansive range of sounds, let's say from commercial sounds to more classical sounds in a large variety of sizes that are all consistent or somewhat consistent in how they play and how they sound. Um, because that's not easy. Bob certainly did that. Um, there are some mouthpiece lines that one or two of them are really good mouthpieces, but the rest of them aren't. That's the blind squirrel. But if you really have this, it's the same with trumpets, if you, but if you have this wide range of designs that give you a lot of sounds and this and that, but are similar, because a Bob Reeves mouthpiece, whether it's a small commercial mouthpiece or one of the classical mouthpieces, has a Bob Reeves sound. They're consistent and that's what you want. Um, so you got to go for that. And again, you got to start where the, where the art is and take it from there. Um, in my opinion, are there still advances that can be made on the trumpet mouthpiece? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, but like you said, you know, start, start with what we've got and, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel, but, uh, right. You know, right, but, right. but we can we can make it a little bit better as we you know 
more consistent or more, uh, you know, as we take advantage of, of understanding of better understanding of acoustics and metallurgy and all the things that go into it. Yeah, certainly. But you also as trumpet players and as designers, and this is a difficult thing. One of my favorite sayings is perfection is the enemy of good enough. But you got to decide where the line of good enough is. That's the hard part. If you're making a rocket nozzle that's got to, you know, take Elon Musk to Mars, that's a different level of good enough than a trumpet mouthpiece. Trumpet mouthpiece got to be made well, but not to that kind of tolerances. So it, it it's where's that line? And that that's what you're trying to do. That's what Bob always tried to do. You know, at some point, you got to say, hey, this is good enough. That's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good advice, though. Very good advice. All right. So that wraps it up for this episode. And I hope that this time together has given you a little bit of insight into the life of Bob Reeves. I know it certainly has opened my eyes to a lot of the contributions that he has had and the impact that he's had on the industry. So please try to remember that important lesson from Bob that you never know when the light's going to go on. So everyone that you interact with, be willing to help them to be a problem solver and treat them with respect because you never know the impact that that one interaction is going to have on that person who could become the next trendsetter in the trumpet world. So thanks for hanging with me today and I hope to see you in the next episode. Peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Mm -hmm.